want to turn it over to Dahlia in a minute. Dahlia is a fellow here at the Berkman Center. She is also a visiting scholar at the Center for Civic Media at MIT. She uh, has a lot of things that she's working on right now. One of them that is taking up a good portion of her time is pouring through the Arab language blogosphere and looking at Twitter maps from various countries. So we're going to get an update of what's going on in social media over there. It's now three years since the um, Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. uh, in a couple hours, we'll uh, have the official announcement of the next president of, of Egypt. And it's not a question of who it's going to be, but how many people are going to turn out and what the, uh, the margin of, of his victory is. It's been, what, four years plus since the Iranian Green Revolution. Yeah. It's uh, been almost a decade since the Orange Revolution uh, in Ukraine, and they've been through oh. many political lifetimes since then. Um, we've gone kind of penduluming back and forth through enthusiasm and pessimism about uh, the, the activities uh, in the network public sphere of the impact of social media on social and political events. So this is a, a nice time to take a, a calm, measured look at what's going on there and revisit some of these ideas. So I think many of you are familiar with this uh, image, uh, especially you know back in early 2011 when this took over our TV screens, our laptop screens, and um, sort of took over the news cycle. Um, this is Tahrir Square. This is also maybe a familiar image of the Tunisian Revolution. So we initially started to see a lot of these images at first. And then we started seeing images like these. And this. And this. And I particularly like this one because um, in Arabic it says Nas book or people's, the people's book instead of Facebook. Um, again, disclaimer, did not start the revolution. Um, I just want to take a step back and, and sort of talk about my history or my link to this. I, when the revolution started, I was actually in New York uh, trying to write my master's thesis, uh, probably failing to do so initially when the revolution started. And I remember spending hours and hours just glued to my laptop screen, looking at Twitter, looking at Facebook. Um, and had, I had a Jazeera English and Al Arabi and all these different broadcasts playing at the same time while Skyping with my parents who were back home uh, in, in Ramallah uh, talking about the situation. And it was just, I remember getting a lot of the news and a lot of the information from Twitter first or from my Facebook feed because I also spent some time in Egypt and had a, I had a lot of friends who were in Tahrir Square. Um, and a lot of that, I got that news first and then happened to see it in mainstream media, uh, which was a fascinating thing to me at the time. And um, I'd like to think that I helped participated by, like, part, even though I was miles away, I participated with this by sending out information or retweeting things. So it was definitely a, a, my connection to the revolutions. Um, I wish I could play this. Maybe I can. Uh, it's a video that probably a lot of you are familiar with. Um, it actually shows, it's got beautiful visuals, but it shows um, the tweets and retweets right before um, Mubarak stepped down, uh, like minutes before that, and how Twitter was sort of, how people were tweeting, and then right after, and about an hour later. And it's, it's fascinating how it just, it ignites. I guess partially as a result of the revolutions, there's been a lot of liter literature that has come out. Um, it's, that's a few of them. Some of them happened to be right before the revolutions or people were interested in what was going on uh, in the Arab world beforehand. And then a lot of it ignited after that, looking at Twitter data, looking at sort of the blogs as well. And uh, obviously, this is something that came out of here. Um, this was um, a report that came out of the Berkman Center back in 2009, and it was, again, pre-revolutions, very interesting uh, sort of study that came up with uh, conclusions and results about the Arab blogosphere itself. And 
you know, some of the observations that came out back in 2009 were the fact that it's not pan-Arab. It's not one Arab entity, but rather there are different um, countries that are uh, country-based focused clusters or blogs. Um, the largest population on the, in the blogosphere was Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Uh, came in in a second. Uh, Egypt was a, was quite was huge in terms of population wise. Major topics were um, were things like personal diaries were huge. People love to write about their lives online. It was a huge thing, and you'll see coming up in the new iteration of this how huge it is. It still is. Um, interestingly enough, and I think part of it is because the data was collected um, in uh, 2009. 2008, 2009, a lot of focus was on Palestine, especially after the Gaza war that had happened. And so there was a lot of bloggers who were writing about that. And of course, religion was also another huge issue with, with some uh, incense, some attention on minorities like Christian minorities and Baha'is. Uh, these are just some of the results, but I think uh, the reason why I bring them up is because they're relevant to what we're going to be looking at in 2014. Um, this is the new map. This is the uh, map that we've actually, through the seed set that I talked about, we've managed to come up with. Um, and again, like with the help of Morningside Analytics that have been able to come up with the sort of algorithms, the, the system itself that has pulled up all that links, all that network, um, and also the visuals, the amazing visuals that we see. So I'm going to take a step back and, and sort of talk about what we're actually, how we're, what lens we're taking or what we're looking at. We're taking this from the perspective of the network public sphere. And maybe I should uh, have you <laughs> explain it. Um, and I guess, like Rob said earlier, it's we're trying to, we keep going back and forth and trying to determine what is the network public sphere when it comes to the Arab world. And the reason why I have this, uh, this image, it's actually of the Sopa Pippa debate that the Berkman Center also uh, released a report about. And what's interesting about this is that early on in the debate, um, and I'm not going to go through details about Sopa Pippa, I'm assuming everyone knows that, uh, but early on in the debate there were a lot of tech blog blogs that were talking about this and they sort of maintained and carried that conversation forward until we had that uh, famous blackout. Uh, online blackout that we witnessed and that resulted in sort of shelving Soap and Pippa, at least for now. Um, and so it's interesting to see what happened in this case in, uh, with Soap and Pippa and how the Arab blogosphere would play into that. What are people sort of, what are the political and social issues that Arabs uh, are keen about and, and concerned with and are blogging about? I can switch. Maybe. Okay. So, and how we're actually going to do this? We're taking uh, we're uh, taking it from a social network analysis approach. So we're looking we're actually looking at this, looking at the networks that are linked together in terms of blogs and um, and sort of and the Twitter uh, sphere. Sorry, I'm trying to pull up. So, and the reason why social network analysis is really key is that it'll give us an idea of what key countries, who are the prominent countries that are blogging or tweeting, uh, who are the key factors or key players in this, what are the topics that they're talking about. Again, it's, it sort of gives us this whole understanding or better understanding of what is the network public sphere in the Arab world. Um, so, I've managed to label some or parts sections of the map itself. Uh, the nodes that use, you know, the methodology we're using to actually create this map is that the nodes themselves are actual individual blogs. Um, the size of it is based on how many people are linking to it. So the larger it is, the more links. And also the colors themselves are actually clusters uh, where people, where blogs are linking to sort of to the same thing. In some sense, it means that they're interested or they're talking about the same thing because they tend to link to the same sources. So you see clusters that are the same color. And they're sort of spread out 
or across the map using basic physics algorithm where it's like the more people are related or the more blogs that are related to each other the closer they are the less they're related the farther they are in the map and you'll see that there's a big chunk right on the right and that's Egypt right there which also happens to be the largest um, sort of uh, the largest population again and you see some other clusters here and there Kuwait Syria Palestine and I've like with in the case of Egypt there are so many different topics that they're talking about that I had to label them differently with like Egypt's left secular and I'll talk more about that and the Muslim Brotherhood personal diaries again that have shown up um, January 2014 I want to say uh, yeah I think that was yeah yeah but it was yeah up to the, up to January 2014 um, again based on seed sets, seed sets that we had provided so again what we find out this time around the map definitely does not represent this and that's sort of sort of the Arab world that we're, we're talking about it's more like this where it's not one Arab world it's actually clusters and and different countries that are talking to each other um, and it's and most of it predominantly I want to say almost three-quarters of it is actually country based where you see clusters just mo mostly focusing on their own local news or, or clusters um, again Egypt is the largest node and I think I'd like to say that part of it is because Egypt has the largest population I think that was what was said as well in the 2009 report it was assumed that because they they have the largest population that they tend to have the largest population online um, attention well Palestine is not so important anymore and that's something that is I think come up uh, as a result of the Arab revolutions in a sense a lot more countries especially like Egypt or Tunisia are focused on their local news and Syria obviously on their local news more so than Palestine and it would be interesting to see what happens um, in the near future as maybe news dies down about certain countries and whether Palestine will sort of if anything happens any violence ignites in that region in Palestine itself Palestine Israel if that attention refocuses uh, or not something that I will definitely be talking about later on is a noticeable uh, blogging fatigue or what Henry has actually dubbed blogging fatigue something that we have definitely noticed is that there's a lot of inactivity that has uh, that is in the current map that did not exist in 2009 and uh, there are some blogs that have stopped bloggers basically have stopped writing uh, it starts off with 2009 but really sort of uh, becomes more and more of an issue in 2011 onwards especially in 2013 and they're mostly around political bloggers so the political bloggers are no longer blogging and yet somehow they appear on our map because it's they've they tend to not write about issues but sort of add banners and images of what their ideological or political preference is and so you see banners, especially after um, what happened over the summer, of people supporting the Muslim Brotherhood with a famous sign, the Rabah sign, which is the four fingers with a uh, yellow background. So you see those on banners, but you don't see people blogging. Um, and the other interesting question is, Saudi Arabia is almost non-existent in this map. And looking at Twitter numbers, uh, and how Twitter has emerged, uh, sort of become more and more popular throughout the Arab world, um, Saudi Arabia has the highest population of people on Twitter and so it's interesting to see whether or to study this to see whether people stopped blogging and shifted to Twitter also sort of connects with the possible blogging fatigue that we're witnessing um, with Egypt like I said and uh, mentioned on the map there are a lot more uh, there are a lot of different topics that are being covered there uh, and what's interesting is that where Saudi Arabia was the second largest largest cluster in 2009 Kuwait is the second largest cluster in this map and there's a very interesting thing we we're talking about this earlier it's like there are different it's like almost a language and topic divide in Kuwait whereas you have the Arabic focused or language blogs that are blogging about politics and local 
sort of political legislation in Parliament, whereas the English is more focused on social issues like um, expos, events, or uh, let's rate the latest restaurant. And so it's interesting how the language divide comes across in terms of the Kuwait blogosphere. And a lot of them are hosted as well, like the English-speaking uh, blogs are not on blogging platforms, but rather hosted sites, which is a curious thing. Uh, with Palestine, there's also an interesting thing in regarding the language as well, whereas in, for the English, there are two clusters for Palestine that are specifically Palestine-based. And for the English, it's, it's more focused on talking about the occupation and how to end the occupation. And it, they act as if they're what Ethan uh, Zuckerman has coined as bridge figures, uh, where they're trying to bridge the situation on the ground with the Western audience. Whereas the Arabic is, uh, the Arabic cluster, Arabic language is focused on talking about life under occupation. And that I think is more facing towards the Arab world. Um, so that's just interesting divides within the language. I want to take a minute and talk about Egypt, uh, especially the political clusters uh, in Egypt. And what we tend to see, at least in terms of media, is that there's a pro-Mursi or pro-Muslim Brotherhood camp, and then an anti-pro-military camp. And in reality, you know, it's almost like a division between both camps. And in reality, that's not the case. And we see that in both the blogosphere and the Twitter maps, which I'll talk about in a second. And What's interesting is that there is a Muslim Brotherhood cluster, and that's, you can see a unified cluster, whereas on the other hand, on the other side, it's the, what we'd like to call left secular liberal uh, politics, or maybe anti-Muslim Brotherhood. There, some are anti-Muslim Brotherhood, anti-military, some are purely anti-Muslim Brotherhood, and there's this, there isn't this unified cluster or set of clusters. So it's, it's sort of, it seems like politically they seem to be scattered and all over the place. And so, oh, SCAF uh, is the military. It's the, um, hmm, something, security, something. It's basically the military. Uh, yeah. And so it's not that, but rather that and all over the place, and especially amongst left-wing uh, or leftist bloggers where you don't see one unified entity as opposed to the Muslim Brotherhood. One other th interesting thing that has popped up, yes, uh, I see people laughing or recognizing this. Even though, um, you know, we may recognize this or the Syrian Electronic Army or have heard of hacking incidents, what's interesting enough on the map is that the pro-Assad um, bloggers are non-existent. We have the Syrian clusters are, clusters are focused mostly on pro-revolution issues and human rights issues. So we have no, we don't see any pro-Assad bloggers whatsoever on this map, which is something quite interesting, even though they have quite a sort of presence, at least online in terms of hacking. So that's another interesting observation, and I'm curious as to why that is the case. Um, Topics, again, personal diaries, romance, huge, probably the largest issues that Arabs tend to blog about. I can't tell you how many hours I spent looking at romantic relationship blogs with like hearts coming down the screen. And yeah, it was uh, at some points quite painful and quite pink and, and red. Um, like I said, with the politics, it's uh, the division is not as clear uh, as we'd like to uh, like to think it is, at least in Egypt, Palestine. You know, again, Palestine is sort of referenced, but it's mostly focused on the Arab revolutions. Not surprisingly, one very interesting thing uh, that I guess I can link to politics and activism is this education cluster. Uh, what emerged from Egypt is um, a set of teachers have taken it uh, taken it upon themselves to uh, write about education in Egypt. And so you see different districts, different schools, and teachers actually writing about the situation. What the Ministry of Education you know, talked about or did, what the government is doing, and how, what the situation is for education. And that's very interesting because that definitely did not exist uh, prior to the revolution, at least. Um, religion and minorities, again, uh, religion 
not surprisingly, is a big issue. Uh, it's mostly focused on a certain sorry, sect of Islam, which is Sunni Muslims. There are a lot of people who choose to write about their faith, but there is also a cluster where you have religious scholars that teach and preach about the faith itself. And interestingly enough, because that's a topic-based cluster, they come predominantly from Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And so it's mostly scholars from those both countries and Sunni that actually sort of write and write about or preach about Islam. Um, Baha'i have, Baha'is have a cluster and uh, historically, if anyone knows anything about Egypt, it's historically Baha'is have not had many rights in Egypt. Uh, in fact, they were oppressed and they, they can't even declare their identity or religious identity. And they've taken that online. So that's another interesting thing. And literature, um, finally, with literature, there are a lot of people who are published authors and who prefer to express themselves through short stories that have actually started up like clusters of blogs and they'd have, they'd link to each other, they link to each other's stories. Uh, and so that was something that I guess is separate from personal diaries, but interesting nonetheless. Language divide. <laughs> like I said, it's, um, a, a lot of the blogs are actually in Arabic. Some are in English and they're, of course, because of the Maghreb or Tunisia, Algeria and Morocco, uh, bloggers tend to choose to blog in both French and Arabic. Uh, whereas in English, like in the case of Kuwait and, and Palestine, some of the blogs are more bridge figure-like or Western-facing uh, and tend to be political. T some of them are tech blogs where people write in English but on tech-specific issues. And there was quite an in interesting expat community. There was an Iraqi cluster that basically were mostly people living abroad and writing about Iraq. And so they uh, would obviously write in English. Yes. Yeah. Just a really quick observation. Um, the majority of the bloggers use Blogger as a platform. Uh, Google Blogspot. Uh, and that was very interesting. I don't know whether it's because it's sort of more user-friendly to use or this is what uh, people were introduced to early on and just continue to use that. And it's just amazing why they just, a lot of them, I would say almost 80 to 90% of them are on Blogger, use Blogger. There are some WordPress, but again, a small minority. Like in the case where I said in Kuwait, they actually just... Uh, the bloggers decide to host their sites. And that's an interesting thing, maybe an indication that they actually do, they have some wealth or are able to pay money to host their sites, or maybe it gives some validation to what they're writing. Uh, and then there were a few cluster of focusing on Tumblr sites. Twitter. Um, so another part of this project is focusing not just on the Arab blogosphere but also on Twitter maps like I said we're doing Egypt Bahrain and Tunisia um, initially and this is just sort of um, a map of the Arab world's um, Twitter usage in the Arab world and as you can see Saudi Arabia is a large chunk I think from the numbers uh, I think the latest numbers that I have are, uh, go back to March 2013, and there are almost 4 million Arabs on Twitter. That's an okay number, I would guess, uh, I'd say. Um, and with Saudi Arabia being almost half of that overall. And these are the Twitter maps. Again, um, just a reminder, these are very, very early results uh, of what we're seeing on the maps, and of course I'd appreciate any feedback that you have. I'm just going to show you sort of Bahrain and Egypt initially. And it's, it's a rather interesting observation because if you see Bahrain is almost split in half. There's like a division where you see a large cluster here and a large cluster there. And almost somewhat the same with Egypt where there is some like division. What's interesting though is with Bahrain, it's a political division as opposed to Egypt, where it's divided based on social and political lines. 
With Bahrain, you see mostly the pro-government, people on Twitter following each other, and then you see the pro-revolution people. And there are a lot of uh, Western journalists that tend to follow this cluster and human rights activists that tend to follow this cluster. And Shiites from, you know, from the Shiite sect from across the region that span. Uh, and you see a lot of, uh, obviously, interestingly, actually, military figures on Twitter here and followed by the military and also a lot of um, following from the Gulf, from Gulf countries, from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE, from, uh, from Kuwait. So this is a very interesting divide. Um, Egypt, on the other hand, you've got the politics on this side and social cultural issues on that side. And it's also, it's all based on followers, who's following who. What's interesting is that, again, it's very diluted or there isn't one clear division in politics. You see a pro-military cluster here, an anti-military, anti-Muslim Brotherhood cluster here and pro-Muslim Brotherhood clusters. But they tend to intertwine quite a bit and we can't get a clear distinction. Sometimes you see some, um, someone who's anti-military and anti-Muslim Brotherhood in the pro-military cluster, and it's very linked together. Um, again, not a unified one chunk, one block. So there are some observations that have come up while I've been doing this research, and one really important question that has uh, come up is, Who's actually using social media in the Arab world? Who are these people that are on Twitter, who are blogging, or maybe not so much anymore, but you know, and are, are on Facebook? And I'd like to say that it's mostly predominantly because the digital divide, in some sense, is still it still exists in the Arab world. We may be looking at the middle class and also the elite in these societies. And that's just something worth looking at and how that actually affects what is being written and also how that plays out in uh, sort of on the ground as well, what's happening on the ground. Another interesting thing that I've observed, I guess, prior my time to, uh, to Berkman, but I've tried to actually follow through looking at the network analysis, I've been involved with a number of activists, um, Palestinian and Egyptian activists. And, um, and what's interesting is that these... Uh, communication channels are exist between a certain number of activists. And that is obvious in some of the Twitter maps where you see some Bahrainis who are followed by Palestinians and by Egyptians. So there are some communication, even though we might not see them or they're not obvious, they exist amongst these activists and they tend to exchange information and tactics. And finally, burnout amongst political bloggers. I had to put in a cat picture. Uh, even though it is actually uh, quite a serious issue. Um, and there's, as I said, in the Arab blogosphere, we've seen signs of burnout. Uh, people are no longer actively blogging. And there are a lot of questions as to where they are now. Have they switched to other platforms? Have they gone to Twitter and Facebook and realized that you know, it's, it's faster for them to relay information? Or have they given up altogether? This is something worth uh, looking into uh, and seeing where, you know, possibly questioning some activists, uh, asking activists to see what's happened to that. And whether it's a burnout as a result of a political situation. I mean, we've got the Egyptian elections and we kind of already knew who the president is. This is a hypothesis uh, that might seem common sense, I guess. Uh, and the question, this hypothesis is, are the governments catching up? Not too long ago, Turkey censored or banned Twitter. Um, but I think even though censorship still exists, like we see in, in the case of Turkey, we're seeing a lot more government or pro-government people joining these platforms and trying to dilute those messages. And so we see in some cases the pro-military in, in Egypt we see them trying to actually join in the message, use hashtags, use the platform to actually bring in the pro-military message in there. And so I think at some point we're going to see more and more of governments who are joining in those, whether it's their supporters or the government, governments themselves, like in Bahrain where we see military personnel on Twitter, uh, trying to join these platforms and, and actually 
try to dilute the message from the other for the other side. So that's just a hypothesis. It's worth looking into as well and see what comes up in in future. Um, the future. Are we going to see a shift to new platforms? Is Twitter and Facebook enough? Are people is the burnout you know the cycles of burnout that we're seeing? Is that going to result in an adoption of a new platform, or is this? more of we give up and we're not going to do this and a new generation will come and pick this up. Uh, these are all questions that are worth looking into and, and you know to look at new tactics whether it's using hashtag trends for, for activists to actually push their information forward or looking at the communication channels that are happening between them. These are all things worth looking into and questions for the future, yes. And one final note, almost done. <laughs> I just want to say that even though we're doing this research here and we're looking at all these network maps, uh, it is worth noting that there are these bloggers are out there on a daily basis risking themselves and risking their lives. And only in the past month I've had uh, some of them friends, activist bloggers who have been arrested by their respective governments. And it's worth just putting the message out there or just recognizing what they've been doing. Thank you. So we will go ahead and open things up for questions. I want to uh, take the uh, moderator's prerogative and ask the first question, if you don't mind. So you've, you've painted a picture of where there's a shift in platforms that a lot of people have moved from blogging into into Twitter and you didn't discuss Facebook, but there's a whole lot more going on there as well. Um, and you've also um, described uh, a shift kind of in attention and emphasis as well. So um, perhaps there's there's less focus on Palestine, more on, on domestic issues and those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Um, between looking at Twitter and the blogosphere, you know the region very, very well. Is this a reasonable reflection of the social and political state of affairs in, this, in these places? Or to ask the question another way, are there um, parts of the picture that are missing in, in what, what you see in digital media? Well, uh, that's a very interesting question. I think part of it, what we're seeing online, is a reflection of what's going on on the ground in the sense where we don't see defined lines or defined divisions in politics so it's it's as it is on the ground i think especially in egypt the left is not entirely unified you've got a lot of divisions with the, within the left and yet with the muslim brotherhood they're quite unified so in some sense yeah there are reflections and then going to syria on the other hand the absence the complete absence of pro assets bloggers is something to look into. It's worth looking into. It's like, do they not blog or what is it that they're using uh, to actually send out their message? Is it hacking? And so in some sense, yes, it is an interesting sort of portrayal what's going on in the ground. But at the same time, to a certain extent, the online world is not enough for us to see what's going on offline. I, I don't know if that answers your question. It's like yes and no in some sense. Please. This was very, very interesting. Thanks for the. Just speak up, please. Uh, very interesting. Thanks for the lecture. Um, how big is Instagram in this uh, scene? Because uh, there's been reports um, floating around of Instagram being being used by the less uh, people that write less or less are less well versed in text using Instagram. Uh, and we don't have data for that, but that's a, quite an interesting observation. I think the question is, uh, we'd look at sort of who's using Instagram and who can use it. So in a lot of countries, what is the rate of smartphones versus feature phones versus, you know, the lesser quality and who can actually go online and, and post on Instagram. And so that would, so, that would be something interesting to look into, not just the data, but who's actually using it. Uh, and whether it is a literacy issue or a technology issue or something else, or it's just a preference, like people prefer to use Snapchat. Or, yeah. So I don't know if you had something. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. Did you have any uh, reason have to no... believe that that's true? Is that I know that the, the, the Instagram is used 
um, for uh, the marketplace for selling sheep. Yeah. Using hashtags. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Oh. You, you mentioned that you know, there was appeared to be blogging burnout, people stopping using their blogging platforms. To what extent did these people actually stop participating, or did they just move their activity over to Twitter or Facebook, where it's harder to find them? That's the question. I think that's I think yeah. I think that's happening way outside the Arab world, also. So. Yeah, I, I think we've had that conversation as well, that we're seeing signs of that across in other countries yeah. as well. Uh, but it's that is a question where, you know, I think we'd like to investigate at some point. Uh, and it's, uh, have they stopped blogging and stopped participating all, all in all, or, or switched to Twitter or Facebook, where <coughs> it's, it's no longer the, the commentary uh, or writing pieces, writing your opinion is not, as important, or Twitter and Facebook has eased that in a sense where you can write a 140 character and then set out your opinion and have a conversation that way instead of actually writing up a long blog post and expect people to comment. So I think we, it might be a shift. It might be complete burnout. Uh, I think no, it's worth looking into. Any social media that are only found in the Arab world and that we're not aware of because they're internal to that region? It, I mean, how do you define what do you mean by social media? Like, for instance, you know, China has their own equivalents of Facebook and Twitter uh, that are not used in the U.S. Are are there similar things in any of the Arab countries that people may have shifted to? So um, I think I want to say no because according to Alexa uh, and sort of rankings of sites uh, throughout different countries in the Arab world, we see that. Google and Facebook uh, are top the top two sites across the region. And so I think, no, it's still, like, Facebook is still a huge issue. Twitter less so, uh, but most people are on Facebook. And, yeah, so I don't think there's an equivalent of that. No. I just wanted to ask a question which is similar to yeah. what's been raised before, and that is really the question of relativity between the different groups that you've been looking at. You've mentioned a couple of times population, you've mentioned digital divide, etc. Have you looked at uh, taking all the data and adjusting it according to population, uh, internet access, a number of smartphones, all these things to try and weight it so you can see is this just pure gross numbers or, or does it mean something more uh, important in the sense uh, you said, for example, Egypt, which has a big population, of course, is big on your map, but it would be interesting if Palestine was more important given a smaller population. For example, have you done those assessments or adjustments? Or is that too difficult? You want to take this? I'll, right. I'll, I'll field this one. Okay. So, so there's, no, there's no simple math in that. So the, these maps are drawn by social networks based on in-links. And there would be, I guess, a logic for the size of a network where there are a hundred bloggers, a thousand bloggers, but I'm not sure what that is. It's not merely counting the number of blogs because this none of these maps are inclusive of all the blogs. Mm -hmm. We chop off the long tail. And what this is, is the most prominent blogs and most prominent Twitter accounts users uh, based upon the in-links or in, in the cases of Twitter by, by followers coming in. So. A, a, a great idea and not so easy not, not yeah, so easy to yeah. implement yeah. and I think yeah. I mean in the case of Palestine there might be more bloggers because there's some reasoning sort of a, a cause that would push people to actually go online and express that where they can in other fields so yeah I mean that so said there's not a there's not a, a, a simple map if you look at population yeah. and participation it's yeah. it's not there not there. There's there's countries missing from the mix that are interesting in their own right. Yeah. One of the most interesting numbers that you came up with was the high rate of Twitter usage in Saudi Arabia, where there's almost no blogging. I'm wondering, does that correlate in some way with government censorship, and does that affect the relative use of these different media? Because with a relatively small population of Saudi Arabia to have half the Twittering in the Arab world seems extremely high. So I think, I mean, I, I can't speak for censorship in Saudi Arabia. I'm not the expert. But uh, 
it's interesting to see the rate of sort of smartphones, uh, the increase in smartphones in Saudi Arabia, which seem to be a massive, a huge thing, and and three G networks as well, where they three G came in early on, smartphones developed or increased early on, and so I think switching from from using your laptop to using your phone for almost everything is what has maybe shifted this uh, the platform. And like I said, I think people have more of a conversation, uh, maybe, on Twitter, uh, more so than actually writing a long blog post and, and, and sort of uh, waiting for comments or a conversation, have a conversation that way. And I think that's part of why we're seeing this shift, basically technology and why people tweet and blog. There may be some correlation between relative use of Twitter versus blogging and relative use of smartphones versus laptops. To a certain extent. To a certain extent, I think. Um, but not a complete one, yeah. I, I'd happy, happily follow up on the, on the censorship angle. Yeah. So um, Saudi Arabia is an interesting example of a place that did not um, seriously invest in rolling out the internet until they could install first the means to filter the internet as well. So what that means is that all internet traffic into Saudi Arabia is run through a proxy farm there, which means they can do very fine-grained filtering of the internet. They can filter at the URL level. So they were indeed filtering individual blogs, uh, not a lot of them, but enough of them, and people understood where the line is. They can also block individual Twitter handles, and they do that as well. Okay. So, so I'm think... more sold on the cultural explanation that Dalia gives in the censorship and, and the technological yeah. than, than the censorship angle. It's an interesting question, though. Yeah. I, for some reason, everyone has shifted. And, uh... Yeah. Um, on the question of burnout, are you seeing actual textual evidence on the blogs that the bloggers that have stopped blogging sort of in their last posts, you know, fewer comments or them saying like, I'm tired of talking about this or is it just you're seeing people stop blogging and you're hypothesizing? Yeah, burnout? so in some cases, yes, they, uh, I would say rare cases, they tend to say this is my last blog, I'm done. In other cases, there's a shift uh, and I know some Egyptian bloggers who have shifted from blogging to and tweeting to completely just basically tweeting and they've stopped blogging so in some cases it could be burnout where I'm not going to blog anymore and deem this sort of site inactive uh, in other cases it's there's been a switch and like I said there's an interesting observation where especially in Egypt um, people may not be writing or actively writing on the blogs but they change banners and so they still maybe I guess have a connection to the blog and haven't completely detached themselves from them but and and they do that by declaring who they're supporting uh, and that's that's interesting I mean is that an indicator that there is burnout or people just don't want to blog don't feel like there's an significance in blogging anymore it's questions worth looking into to be honest the other thing that you mentioned, which I found very interesting, was uh, people who put up a blog post and then tweet it out, and there's fewer links. Like the, the connective tissue is, in many cases, Twitter now and not the mm -hmm. blogosphere. Mm -hmm. When we did the original map in 2009, mm -hmm. the blogosphere was the only game in town, so that the network logic was all implicit in that map. And here it's there still, but it's it doesn't give you the entire, entire picture. A lot of the, the connective tissue is, is often Twitter. Yeah, I think Twitter and Facebook, to yeah. be honest. Like, a lot of people uh, share things over, especially in the Arab world, they share things on Facebook. And so they might either share news or write up a blog post and share it. Um, and so it's, I think, yeah, the conversation is definitely shifting. And when you have a conversation on Facebook and Twitter, what happens to the blogosphere then? I'm really interested in the in the dilution aspect of this. You're you're theorizing that perhaps their uh, government uh, or military sources are going to try and dilute the activist messages online. Have you seen any evidence of that, or uh, like how how would we watch for that? Do you think that they're trying to use? Because I'm thinking about the maps, right? And if you if you were somebody in the military who were looking at that map, 
trying to dilute it, would you use the same vocabulary and tweak it in certain ways? Or I didn't know if you had if you had seen any. So I guess that happens both on Twitter and, and Facebook as well. And it's having, first of all, the pro-government join the platform to begin with is one interesting sort of, that's one way to look at it. It's like, oh, you're seeing more and more, especially like with Bahrain, you have a whole section of the map that is pro-government. Um, and yes, the people who believe in the same political ideology are going to follow each other. Um, I think what would be interesting to look at is not just also how the pro-government supporters are joining, but also the use of tactics that other activists have been using in the past, whether it's hashtag trends. So joining in the conversation, there's one hashtag that is being used by, by say, pro-revolution uh, activists and having pro-government coming in and diluting those messages using the same hashtag. Uh, that is something to look out for. Uh, I know there's one incident that happened last summer um, in Ramallah. Uh, there were a group of activists who were demonstrating I'm blanking out on what they were demonstrating. There are quite a few. They were demonstrating about something, and they are trying to get to the president's office, and they were stopped by the police. Um, and um, a shuffle happened. And you had some cops who were basically beating demonstrators and females, and you had videos, like images of that, videos of that, and videos of people, the demonstrators, using vulgar vulgarity against the police. And so you had both sides there. Uh, and both were, videos were taken or shots were taken. What happened is that the, uh, say, pro-government supporters went on Facebook and completely diluted the message. It was no longer about the demonstration. It was no longer about the fact that some of the police officers used brutality against the demonstrators. It ended up switching towards, oh, these people are using vulgarity and, and so on and so forth. And so that is something that's worth looking into. Again, we see that in Egypt as well, where you have a lot of people who are pro-military who are trying to push their discourse. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of images on my Facebook feed uh, because of the elections that are happening of like people posting uh, pictures of them voting and, and like either carrying an image of Sisi, uh, general, maybe future president, uh, of Egypt or like, you know, doing some gesture that they're supportive of that. And that's actually filling up my feed. So that's another way to look at it. It's like where it's, you have a lot of people, uh, pro-government actors who are adding to that sort of feed or the message. And so you can no longer distinguish in some sense where you see a lot more of one thing than the other and, and or using the same hashtags that activists are using. So it's like a number of things. Um, just presence, presence, yeah. and then hij hijacking of pretty much the message. Yeah. Thank you. Could we just stay Thank on you. this? I, I I'm fascinated by yeah. gov government in, in in social media and blogosphere. So, uh, you point to in your conversation to two separate things. One is just governments who are there, and um, we see that we'll we'll see that with with CC's camp now in Egypt. Um, you see it in, in the Bahrain Twitter sphere. We saw it in the Iranian blogosphere with the supporters for Ahmadinejad there. They were really people that really supported him. We've also seen examples of governments that are trying to get support going that weren't able to get any traction in that. We, we looked at Twitter and Russian um, blogs several years ago. And there was a lot of talk about the pro-Kremlin bloggers, people who are out there trying to seed the message and drum up support. They don't exist in the link economy. Like, nobody believes them. And I, I think there's, there's, you need to have people who I think are receptive to the message in order to pick up on that. And that's, for my taste, I think all the maps I've seen so far are reflective of real political support on the ground and where it doesn't exist. So. With the one asterisk being the Assad example puzzles me a little bit. Yeah, because that's, yeah. I know there is support for that, and for them to not exist there is a little bit puzzling in itself. Yeah, it is puzzling. But I think, yes, it is sort of, especially with Egypt, there is a large number of the population that does support the military and the current government. Um, and we see that as well in, in local media in Egypt, where it's like, 
pre-June 30th last year, it was um, business as usual. And then when the military took over, it was like almost like a switch in reporting. And that and, you know, the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood are now considered a terrorist group and so on and so forth. And it was a switch. And there were a lot of people who switched with that. There were a lot of people who were disgruntled with the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, 30 yeah. million people out in the streets uh, demonstrating against uh, Morsi. So there was definitely that where it's like, yes, there is active support. But what's interesting to see the percentage of representation yeah. uh, and and whether they're using tactics that activists, other activists had previously used, like the hashtag or just flooding social media with, with images or, or messages um, right. and trying to sort of overcome the other side. That's more of an annoyance than anything, right? Is that effective, those... In some kind well, of sabotaging of, of, of conversations? It depends on the situation. I think in some cases where it's unclear what's going on in the grounds and you're seeing two messages come out of the grounds, then it might be worth looking into like what yeah. is actually coming out of the ground. And so it's, it, you know, getting information is important. But in some cases, yeah, it is and it can be an annoyance. It just, I guess, really depends on, on what we're trying to get, what information we're seeing from the ground that's coming out and what we need to see. Yeah. It's not the only source of uh, spam in Twitter. Yeah, no, there. Yeah. yeah. The last piece on that is uh, that the 2009 map looking at the Egyptian um, clusters there. Uh, the Mubarak regime had no friends in the, in the blogosphere. And surprise, surprise. Yeah. Were we smart enough then to look at the map, we could have foretold kind of the political future of Egypt and the, and the, the clusters that were there and the strength and the cohesiveness of them mirror exactly to the political situation that currently exists in, in Egypt. Yeah, which is interesting. Right now we see a unified Muslim Brotherhood, which honestly isn't very surprising, but what's interesting the interesting aspect of it is that the left is not so unified and there's so many different political understandings and divisions and ideologies. So which again is consistent with Yeah. I'm yeah, exactly. It is consistent. And it's interesting to see what happens in the coming year or so with the current elections, um, and what happens on the grounds if it yeah, if people tend to unify uh, around a cause or not and if that shifts online or vice versa. We'll see. How about applying the same analysis to Syria? Why do you think there is no real blogging in support of Assad, and is that indicative of the same problems that Mubarak had? Hmm. I, I would say um, the possibility of not seeing pro-Assad uh, clusters is because, yeah, they don't have friends. And so it's it's even though in some cases there are uh, some Arab countries that have or groups